0: because law cannot change your life. It will articulate for you how you're failing, where you're failing, what specifically you're doing is wrong. But love, God's love changes lives. Because when you accept, when you experience God's love, it makes us want to change. A quick, quick show of hands. How many people are currently living away from home, like in a different country to that of your passport? There's a lot more Bahrainis in here than I. Heard. We'll try that again. It's a new year. Maybe your resolution can be to participate in church. How many people are living away from home at the moment, in a different country than the, their, their passport says they're from? Oh there we go. Much better. Good. Uh, if you had your hand raised then, even if it was by compulsion, uh, the book of Esther is gonna apply to you. So there's a reason why we ask you to put your hand up. Uh, we don't ask you to put your hand up to shame you, like how many people were here at 10 o'clock. That'd be a really, uh, kind of a mean hand raising. But when we're doing stuff like this, there's a reason behind it, so let's, <laughs> let's get involved. Uh, so much of scripture is a very, very applicable to us living away uh, from where we are originally from, And uh, the book of Esther is going to be no different. So looking forward then, like I just said, we're going to work through it over the next 10 Fridays, uh, one chapter a week. There's usually a family service somewhere in February. Uh, We're working on uh, a guest, a couple of guests, uh, maybe at some point in February as well. Uh, But the plan is to work through Esther before We get to Easter uh, week by week. So if your Bible does have a ribbon, if you carry a bookmark, I'd encourage you to put it in Esther. Uh, Where we find it in our Bibles, it's not an often um, referenced book, as we'll talk about in a moment. But if you open your Bible right in the middle, you're going to get to the book of Psalms. If you work backwards, you'll go Psalms, Job, and then Esther. Uh, So before we really do walk through it together... Uh, we're going to start with a very catchy five-point introduction to the book because it's important that we know what was going on uh, before we take anything from it. Uh, so, the Book of Esther takes place in the Persian, we refer to as the Persian period of history, sort of between five and three hundred years before Jesus was born. And Esther happens after uh, lots of Israelites had returned from exile to their own land to rebuild the temple and to kind of reestablish their worship and their sacrificial system. Most of them, though, didn't return, which is really interesting. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, everybody loves it. I know that plans I've got for you and uh, plans for uh, hope and a future. Most of them chose to not live in that, which is kind of ironic given how many people now claim that verse for themselves. The people that it was actually written to and about, most of them chose, no, I'm gonna stay in Persia where we were exiled because this is now home. Uh, And Esther and the people that we're gonna read about, it seems, chose not to return, not interested in complying with the prophetic command to return and to rebuild and to to live that future full of hope. Uh, So most of them are still in Persia the reference there, coming back and rebuilding, and we read a lot about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, and the, the, the stuff in Esther, the events of Esther, take place between Ezra chapter six and Ezra chapter seven. Uh, Esther is the only book of the Bible in which the name of God is not mentioned, yet God is very present. Uh, the law, the, the sacrifices, offerings never mentioned. Uh, the New Testament doesn't directly quote from Esther. Uh, and it was most likely written from the group who had come back from Persia to their land. And they'd heard about what was happening in Persia. Somebody had heard about it, and they decided to write it down so that everybody could read about and be encouraged by the things that were still happening in Persia. Uh, and it would have encouraged both well, both groups, mainly those who'd come uh, back, feeling that they're now, they're the different group, they're, they're kind of abandoned, they're not with the majority of their people, uh, but hearing how God is still working among his people would have helped them to see that they're not totally abandoned because they're in a different place to the majority of their people, which is why as, as a church here that is so applicable To us, And why we very easily demonstrated, look, most of us are away from home. This is not home for us. We've got an automatic right to be here, and the majority of our people, let's say, are not here. So Esther, the book of Esther, is going to show God's people that they're not totally abandoned. They're not abandoned at all just because they're in a different place to many of the friends and their family. And it seems that those who'd returned, we see from Ezra and Nehemiah, we're kind of struggling. They're kind of struggling to re-establish routines, rhythms. So it would have been very, very encouraging to them to hear how God was still working among His people, even though for now they were apart, and that God is with all His people, no matter where they are. And again, so for us here in Bahrain now, it's a great book. Being away from home, uh, even if this is where where you know that God has called you, even if this is where you love to be right now. This is a book for people who are away from home. It's a book to encourage uh, exiles, those away from home. Uh, And so at the time that these events took place, we said it's in this Persian period of history, the Persian Empire. was the biggest empire the world had ever seen. uh, And archaeology has found remnants, ruins of the the, the stuff mentioned uh, in this book. It's really important because it roots this book and the events therein in a real moment in history. This is not a tall tale that we tell around a campfire to encourage people who are feeling a bit blue. These things happened in these uh, in these places. And as CJ just read, the king who's at the center of a lot of these things, commonly known as Xerxes, maybe we can sub that in next time we read, uh, he made an appearance in the movie 300. If you've ever seen that movie, 300, uh, the king there, the angry king, who's I think he's riding an elephant or something. That's that's him. So he's there. So we've established a little bit of context that this book is going to be great. The next ten weeks are going to be very, very applicable for our church here and now. Uh, and this morning then we're going to walk through chapter one together. I'm going to draw a conclusion again for ourselves. Uh, here and now, so the king, King Ahasuerus, commonly known as Xerxes, we're going to refer to him as Xerxes because it's easier for everybody, me included, uh, he consistently comes across as very prideful and very arrogant. And In the first chapter, we see he's giving these feasts. He's giving these wonderful parties for all his officials and his servants. Uh, so we're going to read again verses 2 to 4. And as we read our Bibles, I not you to Oh, not yet. Sorry, as you read our Bibles, isn't it a picture being there? It's a memory test now. So we're going to read from chapter one, verses two to four, and we're going to picture being there—the pictures that we've just seen. So in those days, Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he provided a banquet for all his officials and his servants. The army of Persia and Media was present, as well as the nobles and the officials of the provinces. He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his majestic greatness for a lengthy period of time, 180 days to be exact. So we're there, we're in his palace, it's six months of lunches, dinners, brunches, parties, it's six months that seem to be for no other reason than him to show off how great his place is and how great he is and how wonderful he is. And as we get to verses 4 to 9, there's more detail that kind of suggests to us that whoever wrote this saw this. The detail is so precise that they had to have been there. So verses 4 to 9 tell us that he, the king, displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his majestic greatness For a lengthy period of time, 180 days. When those days were completed, the king then provided a seven-day banquet for all the people who were present in Susa, the citadel, for those of highest standing to the most lowly. It was held in the court located in the garden of the royal palace. The furnishings included white linen and blue curtains hung by cords of the finest linen and purple wool on silver rings, alabaster columns, gold and silver couches, displayed on a floor made of valuable stones of alabaster, mother of pearl, and mineral stone. Drinks were served in golden containers, all of which differed from one another. Royal wine was available in abundance. At the king's expense, there were no restrictions on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his supervisors that they should do as everyone so desired. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace." So after six months of welcoming everybody from all over the place, everybody leaves and those who live there get an additional seven days of eating, drinking, and hanging out together. And There's these luxurious descriptions there in the middle of the gardens. Again, the detail suggests that whoever wrote this was there and knew what was going on. All these descriptions, all these very luxurious materials and precious stones And we read at the bottom of the passage there, there were no restrictions on the drinking for the king Uh, had instructed all his supervisors that they should do as everyone so desired. Uh, We might call this an open bar. For for seven days, they've just gone along to this great big party, great big garden party, uh, and eaten and drunk as, as much as they want. Uh, Meanwhile, at the same time, we see that Queen Vashti is giving a banquet just for the ladies. Uh, Not unusual. There's nothing strange about that culturally. If you've lived here for long enough, you've probably experienced something similar where you're invited to something and then the guys go here and the girls go there. So there's nothing strange about what she's doing. And as this progresses, this six months followed by a week, the king then makes the first of loads of terrible decisions there in verse 10. And it's really important that we see that he makes this really bad decision as he was feeling the effects of the wine. He's had six months and a week, and now he thinks he's in a great place to make some really big decisions. So on the seventh day, he's feeling the effects of the wine, he orders the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Vashti in to the party, into the men's side of things, into the king's presence, wearing her royal high turban. He wanted to show the people and the officials her beauty. for She was very attractive. So he's had six months of showing anybody who wants to come. Look how great we are. Look at all our stuff. Then he's got a week. Just the people who live in this place. Let's do it even more. And now at the end of that, he wants to up it again. And he wants to bring his wife in. Look how great she is. Kind of is up in the boasting every time, and he wants to now bring his wife in in front of his friends. And there's people there gathered to say, Look, uh, look how beautiful she is. She was very attractive. And so, as we move through Esther, there are going to be loads of kind of smaller secondary lessons as we draw a big primary conclusion. And the first one here is, is really, really clear drunk decisions are bad decisions. We can all agree on that. Drunk decisions are bad decisions. Paul writes really clearly about this to the Ephesians. Don't be drunk with wine. It's going to ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Rather than controlling yourself and your thoughts and your actions and your responses, when you're drunk, something else is controlling that. But Paul says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So if we're going to give over control of ourselves, our thoughts and our actions and our reactions, if we're going to give over control of ourselves to something, the very clear counsel of Scripture is that for the born-again believer, that is not to be drunk. If we're going to let anybody else make decisions for ourselves, it's not our drunk self. It's instead be filled with the Spirit, God's Spirit that indwells you as you put your faith and your trust in Jesus. So back in Esther, Xerxes wants to show people how great his wife is. And if if that was an isolated sentence all by itself, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Looking for some male uh, feedback here. Telling people how great your wife is is not a bad thing, is it? No, thank you. First week here, and we're already engaging. You can come back. Guys, it's all right to tell people how great your wife is, isn't it? Oh my gosh, Jason, thank you. Maybe we need to... Where's Dave? Get something on paper for like a marriage weekend or something. Maybe just a men's event where we talk about how great our wives are. Mine is. So is Brandon and so is Jason's. Anyway, so uh, he wants to show people how great his wife is, which is great, but he wants to parade her around in front of a, a bunch of boozed up people, which is not okay. And he wants to show off how great his wife is, but it's after six months of, 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 of parties. It's a week of intense drinking. And now at the end of that, as he's feeling the effects of it, he thinks, now I'll get Vashti in. Uh, and that's the best way to do this. The best way to show off how great my wife is and how, much, how great she is, basically. The best thing, way to do that is to command her to come here now. So guys, it's all right to tell people how great your wife is. Ladies, does that work when it comes across as a command? Now, come here now, I say so. Sounds like you were talking to a dog. Come here now, or else, is what he's done. And then different, if you read around this, different sources are gonna give different thoughts about what's going on. Some people think that he wanted her to come in to dance. Some people think that the turban is all she was wearing. Either way, Vashti says no, and chooses instead to keep her modesty and dignity intact. She's not there to be paraded around in front of a bunch of drunk friends of her husband, which is quite fine. We're quite comfortable with the decision that she's made. And it's not explained why uh, the, the suggestion that it was to dance, the suggestion that you know, she's leaving her clothes behind, is just not written there. And we need to be really careful making arguments and, and making points from the white spaces uh, in our Bibles. whatever the reason was that she said no, unfortunately for Vashti, there were terrible consequences. Uh, But interestingly, in kind of history that's outside of the pages of the Bible, she reappears later on uh, as the mother of the next king. And the time gap where she disappears from the biblical history and reappears in secular history, the time gap fits really, really well with this idea that there could have been another queen. Uh, appointed for just this period of time, um, so she says, no, the consequences are terrible, and we read that Xerxes, we read the king was enraged and his anger burned within him. Then he makes the second in a series of just terrible decisions. This is a guy, again, if you read about him, stuff doesn't go his way, and he orders his soldiers to like whip the waves of the ocean. This guy is not a great decision maker, uh, and he listens to some some really bad. Well, we would say some really bad counsel of uh, Memucan in particular, and his decision is that Vashti is never, ever again to come before me, and we're going to depose her. She's not going to be the queen anymore. She's refused my request and my command and my demand. That's it. She's gone. We read there at the end of verse 19, Vashti may not come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, let the king convey her royalty to another who is more deserving than she. And let's be fair, we've, spent, you know, we've bashed him a couple of times, but he does take counsel. He does listen to those who are in place to help him lead. This is not a chapter of all bad decisions. He takes counsel, which is good, because being a singular, uh, solo leader, making dictatorial decisions is just not how the Bible says that leadership should take place. So there are wise people around him, which is good, but he's drunk And he's angry, and that's not a good place to make decisions from, which is bad. So the the goal of what he wants to achieve here is somewhat noble. We can kind of see where they were going with this. Let's depose her, and let's make an example of her, so that at the end of verse 20, all the women will give honor to their husbands, from the prominent to the lowly. And now, again, if we were just to clip that out by itself, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very noble uh, goal. But the way that he went about it was heavy-handed, to to say the least. And again, interestingly, when we talk about relationships, when we talk about Christian marriage between a husband and a wife, the New Testament would back up This is a good thing. The New Testament would agree, and it does, in a couple of of times in a couple of places that wives honor husbands. But, really, really importantly for us, the New Testament frames it very, very differently. So we'll take a little detour um, and we'll come back to this. But wives are counseled to submit to their own husband as to the Lord. A couple of times in a couple of places. Uh, Ephesians 5.22 for example. But this is not, and there is not in Scripture, a blanket call for all women to submit to all men in all contexts. That's not what the Bible teaches. Within a Christian marriage, there's a wonderful exchange of selfless love for submission. And where they meet, it's a really beautiful thing. Both parties kind of hold themse- hold the other person as more important than themselves. And both go out of their way to show it. And so for wives, specifically, it's shown in a posture of submission. To submit to someone that you don't know, or to someone who's not proven their love for you, is really difficult. Bordering on impossible. To submit to someone that you know, beyond all doubt, is going to take care of you, and loves you more than themselves is a much more achievable task for most people. And then the other side of the coin, the husband as his first priority needs to seek the good of his wife. It's really plain and simple. When a husband loves his wife like this, there's no stigma, there's no reservation in that call to submit because the wife knows that she's submitting to somebody who wants what's best for her. And the husband knows that his job is to Provide what is best and to, to, to love her more than himself. And so, really, really simply, the call within Christian marriage is not for a, a, a power struggle and who's in charge here and who's dominant in this marriage. It's a call of uh, mutual dependence. It's a, a, a union. It's a union of power and dependence, not a struggle for power. And Colossians, in particular, shows us the reason for this submission. And love, and so the exhortation in Colossians uh, about uh, submitting and about, about loving comes right after, well, well, we'll read it together first. Like the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, all with grace in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. So the two exhortations there, submit to your husband, love your wives, comes the very next sentence to whatever you're doing in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. And so the exhortation to submit to your husband becomes in the name of Jesus and giving thanks to God. Wives, submit to your husbands. And for the husbands, it becomes in the name of Jesus and being thankful to God, love your wife. And that's so much more powerful than, hey, Vashti, in here, with your turban on, now. It's so much more powerful and such a, a much more beautiful relationship when, in the name of Jesus and giving thanks to God, submit to your husband. In the name of Jesus and giving thanks to God, love your wife. Or not. Uh, <laughs> so much more powerful than bring Vashti in here now. And if she doesn't come, that's it. And so I know that lots of you are uh, school teachers. Uh, some of you know that I was a school teacher too. Uh, thinking about you're going back to school and it's a new term, you get some new students. I don't know if you would agree, but <laughs> inside you want to go in there and you want to lay down the law. This is my classroom. I'm the boss in here. You're just going to do whatever I say. I know everything. You know nothing, is how you want to conduct yourself as a school teacher. And if you're thinking, no, it's not, well, then I don't believe you. You do. You want to go in there and you want to be respected, feared a little bit. You want to be that teacher. I can see some some of the teachers smiling. You want to be that guy. Uh, But for me, that never worked. (laughs) That that never worked as a teacher. Laying down the law never really worked for me. Uh, Perhaps it was the classes that I was given. Uh, Perhaps I'm just not very good (laughs) at laying down the law. But the student-teacher thing despite what you might want to do, works best when you approach them with love and not law. When you walk in there and say, I'm the boss, I know everything, you know nothing, the average, for me, teenaged high school student is going to turn around and say, no, you don't. They're just going to contradict you, whatever you say. And it's that old thing of they don't, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, which is a little bit cheesy, uh, but it's true they don't they don't care that you're their new teacher uh, they don't care that it is your classroom when you're the boss until they know that you care uh, about them and you know in that model of you know um, looking after a classroom with love and not law, there are going to be times for honest and frank conversations if you copy this off the internet one more time, you're not going to pass this class you, you need to be able to say stuff like that in love um, but most of the time, you're going to get more from students when you give more to students, not try and govern them with law. Unfortunately, uh, here in Esther, though, the king, he pushes ahead with this drunken, angry decision where he commands and demands things uh, of his wife, and he moves forward with this really bad decision. We see there in verse 21, the matter seemed appropriate to the king and the officials, so the king acted on the advice of Memucan. He sent letters throughout all the royal provinces to each province according to its own script and to each people according to their own language that every man should be ruling his family and should be speaking the language of his own people. He's doing his best, well, he's doing everything to just rule by law. Do this because I've said so and I'm the king. And so it'd be very easy for us, we could stop here and we could make Esther chapter one about marriage. We could make Esther chapter 1 about drinking to the point of being drunk. We could make a really moral case for making good decisions. And then we could spend some time kind of like beating ourselves up about the times in our lives when we've not made good moral decisions. But Jesus said in a few different places that all of Scripture points to him. And so there's going to be a big picture case of that through Esther, but But now here, uh, Esther chapter 1, how does this take us to Jesus? And I think it's how we see it in how the king sought to bring Vashti in. It's so important. How he seeks to bring her in, how he seeks to influence her behavior is so important. He tries to do that with law. Come in here now or you will face the consequences. That's their, the covenant of their relationship. I am the king, you're the queen, but we're not equals. Whatever I say, you're going to do it. And if you do, everything will be fine. But if you don't, there are going to be some consequences. And I think that gives us here and now a really strong takeaway. Because under the new covenant, under the way that now we relate to God... the the, the promise that God will forgive your sin and restore you to right relationship with him when you turn to him with repentance and faith in Jesus. Under that relationship agreement, covenant, rather than commanding you and me to do this or that, rather than putting that harsh and heavy yoke of law upon us, as we see here with the king's command and Vashti's refusal, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, desires that we live lives that honor him and one another, not now because of law, but because of love. And so as the king wanted to change circumstances and wanted to, to have Vashti do some stuff based on law, do this or face the consequences, God wants you and I to grow, to be changed. As Peter writes, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And God's motivation towards you for doing that is love now. And it's not a legal partnership. It's not a legal relationship anymore. Because God loves you to the point of death and beyond. In sending Jesus, he demonstrated as in, in the most spectacular way possible, his great love for you, not the spectacular power of his law. God has demonstrated his great love for you and for me in sending what we needed to be saved from the consequences of our sin that the law brings to light, that highlights for us. We read in you know, whilst we were sinners, Jesus died for us. It's a wonderful example. It's the best example of his love for you. Not his great love for his own law. Rather than now command and decree that we've got to live like this and do this or else face the consequences. Just living like robots with flesh and blood as the king wanted Vashti to be. God first and foremost loves you because Law doesn't change lives. Love does. If law could have changed lives, it would have changed lives. If we could live under God's law and and earn and deserve our way back into right relationship with him, if we could avoid transgressing his law, then, then we would. We would earn ourselves into eternity by ticking all the boxes that the law provides for us. If we could use God's law to change our own lives, to become better people, we would. We surely would have. Now let's be clear as well, even though we're talking about love as being superior to the law, a better way, as Paul uh, refers to it, God's law is still perfect and holy, and it does set that perfect standard for all people. Psalm 19 says that all the Lord is perfect, And it preserves one's life. So the problem is not the law. The problem is with us. Because the holiness and the perfection that God's law demands is just unattainable for us in our fallen humanity. We can't reach that standard. So the problem is not the law. God's law is perfect. The problem is with us. Again, Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short. Law cannot change our lives. Doing what we're commanded to do simply because somebody says so very rarely works. Again, you think teachers in classrooms, you tell a kid to do something, maybe. Maybe they'll do it. Maybe they won't. You think kids at home, maybe they'll do it. Maybe they won't. Doing what we're commanded to do just because we're told to do it is not that effective. If you're in any doubt, you know, read, read through the wilderness book, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. See people try and fail, and they try harder, and then they fail harder. Because law cannot change your life. It will articulate for you, how you're failing, where you're failing, what specifically you're doing that is wrong. But love, God's love changes lives. Because when you accept, and when you experience God's love, it makes us want to change by our own volition. It changes what we want to do with our free will. Now, it's obviously conjecture to say so, but can you imagine Vashti refusing to just pop in and say hi to her loving, caring, selfless husband if that was how their relationship worked? Can you imagine her saying no to that because I, I, I can't. Can you imagine her saying no to I oh, just Xerxes uh, wants you to pop in and just say hi. And she knows, without a shadow of a doubt, that he loves her more than he loves himself. Again, it's conjecture, but I can't imagine her saying no to that. Because when we receive, when we accept this kind of love, we accept God's love in our lives, we want to change. We want to live how he says we should live, to please him, as Second Corinthians puts it. And again, it could be very very simply, law doesn't change lives. Love does. And so, as we move towards a conclusion, I read this week that the most amazing example of this, of a life changed by love and not law, the most amazing example of this in the Bible is a guy named Saul, who was a religious extremist that killed Christians. If you read about how Paul describes himself in relation to the law, like he was the guy. He's got this list of credentials. They're so long. He, if there was anybody who had a chance of earning and completing and, and keeping the law, the way that Paul talks about himself, we're led to believe it was him. One day, on his way to Damascus, he encountered the resurrected Jesus the living embodiment and example of God's love for you. Love changes everything, and we experience the greatest love of all when we turn to God in repentance and faith in Jesus to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Saul's life, and then Paul, Saul's life changed as radically as he was trying to change it with law, it changed as radically as that when he encountered the resurrected Jesus because God's love changes lives. An encounter with the resurrected Jesus, the living embodiment and pinnacle example of God's love for you changes lives. So I would leave you this morning then with that question. Has God's love changed your life? Have you had that encounter with the risen Jesus? Experienced God's great love for you, and has that changed your life? So, as we move into a a time of prayer, I'll just maybe invite Brenda to uh, to play for a couple of minutes, and I want us to personally consider as we move into prayer: Has my life changed? Have I encountered and experienced God's great love for me best shown in the person and the work of Jesus? Is my life changed? And if it is, you can thank God for that. And if it isn't, today's a great day for you to pray for your life to be changed. So we'll spend a few moments in, uh, in personal prayer. And then close. would you buy your headset?